Section 7 of A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by a Gentleman on His Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by Sarah Scott. The History of Miss Mansell and Mrs. Morgan, Part 5. The next morning proved rainy, which prevented me from making any early excursion. But as it cleared up about eleven o'clock, Lamont and I went into the garden, to enjoy the fragrance which every herb and flower exhales at this time of the year, after the desirable refreshment of gentle showers. I conducted him to the flower garden which had so much delighted me the morning before, and we had not paid due admiration to all the vegetable beauties there exhibited to our view when Mrs. Maynard joined us. I told her it was but a poor compliment to her conversation to say I longed for her company, since now my curiosity might occasion that impatience which I should nevertheless have felt, had I not been left in painful suspense by the interruption we had received the day before, in the midst of her narrative." "'It would be unusual,' said she, "'for a woman to quarrel with curiosity. "'So far from complaining of yours, "'I am come merely with a design to gratify it, "'and only expect you will judge of my desire "'to oblige you by my readiness in obeying your commands. "'Were I myself the subject, "'my motive for my obedience might be equivocal.'" The history of Miss Mansell and Mrs. Morgan continued. I think, continued Mrs. Maynard, we left Miss Melvin requiring to be confronted by her accuser, a request which her stepmother was not inclined to grant, for, though in her dealings with young Simon she had perceived such a degree of solicitude for his own interest, and such flagrant proofs of want of integrity, that she did not doubt, but that by promising him the farm on rather better terms than she had yet consented to, he might be prevailed with to join so far in her scheme as to assert anything to Sir Charles, yet she dared not venture to produce him face to face to Miss Melvin, fearing lest his assurance should fail him on so severe a trial. She replied, therefore, that the proofs were too strong to admit of doubt, but she could not think of exposing Miss Melvin to the mortification of hearing her depravity witnessed by, perhaps the last person whom she expected should acknowledge it. Besides, that by such an eclat the disgrace must infallibly become public, and she be deprived of the only means left her of rescuing her reputation from that infamy, to which in a very short time it must have been irrevocably condemned, for it could not be supposed that Mr. Morgan would accept as his wife a woman with a sullied character. Miss Melvin was almost distracted at being both so injuriously accused and denied the liberty of defending herself, she begged, she entreated on her knees that Sir Charles would not suffer her to fall a prey to such undeserved malice. She asserted her innocence in the strongest and most persuasive terms, and insisted so warmly on her demand of being confronted with her accusers, that her father grew inclined to grant her just request. Lady Melvin, perceiving he began to comply, repeated her refusal in the most peremptory manner, and declaring to Miss Melvin that she had no other choice left her but either to resolve to marry Mr. Morgan, or to be exposed to shame in being publicly disclaimed by her parents, who would no longer suffer her to remain in their house, led Sir Charles out of the room, and he, though reluctant, dared not refuse to accompany her. 
Miss Melvin was now left to reflect on this dreadful alternative, filled with horror at the shocking conduct of her stepmother, terrified with her threats and sensible there was no villainy she was not capable of perpetuating rather than give up a point she was thus determined to carry. She was incapable of forming any resolution. She ran to her friend to seek from her that advice and consolation which her own distracted thoughts could not afford her. Miss Mansell was so struck with the terror and amazement which was still impressed on Miss Melvin's countenance, that she had not for some time courage to ask the cause. Trembling with fears of she knew not what, she embraced her distressed friend with an air of such tender, though silent sympathy as softened the horror of Miss Melvin's mind, and brought a shower of tears to her relief which at length enabled her to relate all that had passed between her and her parents. Louisa found it much easier to join in her friend's grief than to administer consolation. She knew not what to advise. Two artless, virtuous young women were ill-qualified to contend with Lady Melvin, especially in an affair which could not be rendered public without hazarding Miss Melvin's character, for reputation is so delicate a thing that the least surmise casts a blemish on it. The woman who is suspected is disgraced, and though Lady Melvin did not stand high in the public opinion, yet it was scarcely possible for anyone to believe she could be guilty of such flagrant wickedness." Miss Melvin had a very strong dislike to Mr. Morgan, whose disposition appeared as ill-suited to hers as his age. To enter into wedlock without any prospect of social happiness seemed to her one of the greatest misfortunes in life. But what was still of more weight in her estimation, she thought it the highest injustice to marry a man whom she could not love, as well as a very criminal mockery of the most solemn vows. On the other side, she considered that to preserve her reputation was not only necessary to her own happiness, but a duty to society. It is true, said she, I am not placed in a very conspicuous sphere of life, but I am far from being of a rank so obscure that my actions will affect no one but myself. Nor indeed do I know any so low, but they have their equals who may copy after them, if they have no inferiors. The care of our virtue we owe to ourselves, the preservation of our characters is due to the world." and both are required by him who commands us to preserve ourselves pure and unpolluted, and to contribute as far as we are able to the well-being of all his creatures. Example is the means given universally to all, whereby to benefit society. I therefore look on it as one of our principal duties to avoid every imputation of evil, for vice appears more or less hateful as it becomes more or less familiar. Every vicious person abates the horror which it should naturally excite in a virtuous mind, there is nothing so odious to which custom will not in some degree reconcile us. Can we expect, then, that vice, which is not without its allurements, should alone retain all its deformity when we are familiarized to its appearance? I should never, therefore, esteem myself innocent, however pure my actions, if I incurred the reputation of being otherwise when it was in my power to avoid it. With this way of thinking, my Louisa, you may imagine that I might be brought to believe it my duty to sacrifice my ease of mind to the preservation of my character, but in my case there is no choice. I must either add to the contamination of a very profligate world, or in the face of heaven, enter into the most solemn vows to love a man, whom the most I can do is not to hate. This is willful perjury. In such an alternative duty cannot direct me, and misery must follow my decision." Let me determine as I will. In this resolution Miss Melvin left her friend, but the vent she had given to her grief had greatly calmed her spirits and restored her to the power of reflection. 
At her entrance into the house, she met Lady Melvin, who with a very stern countenance ordered her to go and entertain Mr. Morgan, who waited for her in the parlour. She found him alone, and as he began to renew his addresses, which a repulse from her had not discouraged, since he hoped to succeed by the influence her parents had over her, she immediately formed the resolution of endeavouring to make him relinquish his pretensions, in hopes that if the refusal came from him, he might become the object of her mother's indignation, and her persecution might drop at least for a time. She therefore frankly told him that though her affections were entirely disengaged, yet he was so very repugnant to them that it was impossible she should ever feel that regard for him which he had a right to expect from his wife, and therefore entreated him, in consideration of his own happiness, if hers were indifferent to him, not to persist in a pursuit which, if successful, could not answer his hopes nor reduce her to render herself wretched by becoming his wife, or to exasperate her parents by refusing him. She then added all her heart could suggest to flatter him into compliance with this request. Mr. Morgan's foible was not an excess of delicacy, he told her plainly. He admired her eloquence prodigiously but that there was more rhetoric in her beauty than any composition of words could contain, which, pleading in direct contradiction to all she had said, she must excuse him, if he was influenced by the more powerful oratory of her charms, and her good sense and unexceptionable conduct convinced him that when it became her duty to love him, she would no longer remain indifferent. All Miss Melvin could urge to show him this was but a very poor dependence, had no sort of weight, and he parted from her only more determined to hasten the conclusion of their marriage. Lady Melvin had not been idle all this time. She had prevailed on young Simon to acquiesce in the question she put to him before Sir Charles, either by giving short answers or by downcast eyes, which signified assent. With this Sir Charles acquainted Miss Melvin, and insisted on her not thinking of exposing herself to the indignity of having the whole affair discussed in her presence. All the indignation that undeserved calumny can excite in an innocent mind could not have enabled Miss Melvin to bear being charged before so low a creature, with the passion for him, and still less to have heard the suborned wretch pretend to confess it. She therefore found no difficulty in obeying her father in that particular, and rather chose to submit to the imputation than to undergo the shame which she must have suffered in endeavouring to confute it. She attempted to persuade Sir Charles to permit her to stay in the house under what restrictions he and his lady should think proper, till her conduct should sufficiently convince him of her innocence, and not force her into a hated marriage, or unjustly expose her to disgrace and infamy. Her tears and entreaties would soon have softened his heart, and as far as he dared he showed an inclination to comply with so reasonable a proposal, but his lady easily obliged him to retract and to deprive Miss Melvin of all hopes of any mitigation of the sentence already pronounced against her. Could she, without the loss of reputation, have fled to a remote part of the kingdom, and have hid herself in some obscure cottage, though reduced to labour for a subsistence, she would have thought it a state far more eligible than becoming Mr. Morgan's wife. But if she thus turned fugitive and wanderer, in what light could she expect to be seen by the world? Especially as Lady Melvin would infallibly, to remove any blame from herself, be liberal in her aspersions. 
where could she be unknown whatever disgrace might be affixed to her name she herself might escape censure but yet she would not be less guilty of a violation of her duty to society since she must appear very culpable to those who knew her and contribute to the depravity of others as far was in her power by an example which her motives being unknown would appear a very bad one this consideration determined her to sacrifice her peace to her character for by having told Mr. Morgan the true state of her heart, she had acquitted herself from any charge of attempting, by the gift of her hand, to deceive him into a belief that he was the object of her affections. She still had scruples about entering into the matrimonial state, on motives so different from those which ought to influence every one in a union of that kind. These were not to be removed, but she imagined this might in some measure be excused as the least culpable part she could act and since man was here neither her judge nor accuser she hoped the integrity of her mind would be received as some alleviation of a fault she was thus forced to commit since she was determined in the strictest manner to adhere to every duty of her station having formed this resolution she went to consult her friend upon it who as a person less perplexed though scarcely less concerned as their affections were so strongly united that one could not suffer without the others feeling equal pain might possibly be a calmer judge in so delicate a point Louisa subscribed to her friend's sentiments on the occasion, only desired her to consider well, whether she should be able to bear all the trials she might meet within the married state when she was entirely indifferent to her husband. "'My prospect,' said Miss Melvin, "'I am sensible, is extremely melancholy. "'All inclination must now be laid aside, "'and duty must become my sole guide and director.' happiness is beyond my view i cannot even hope for ease since i must keep a constant restraint on my thoughts indifference will become criminal and if i cannot conquer it to conceal it at least will be a duty i have learnt to suffer but was never yet taught disguise and hypocrisy herein will consist my greatest difficulty i abhor deceit and yet must now show the real sentiments of my heart linked in society with a man i cannot love the world can afford me no pleasure indeed no comfort for i am insensible to all joy but what arises from the social affections the grave i confess appears to me far more eligible than this marriage for i might there hope to be at peace mr morgan's fortune is large but his mind is narrow and ungenerous and his temper plainly not good if he really loved me he could not suffer me to be forced into a marriage which he well knows i detest a knowledge which will not mend my fate, most certainly. Can I enjoy the pleasures of self-approbation? It would be impossible to be very wretched, but the most exact performance of my duty will not yield me that gratification, since I cannot be perfectly satisfied that I do right in marrying a man so very disagreeable to me. I fear the pride of reputation influences me more than I imagine, and though it is as justifiable as any pride, yet still it is certainly no virtue. When I reflect, said she afterwards, on the step I am going to take, my terrors are inexpressible. How dreadful it is at my age, when nature seems to promise me so many years of life, to do myself to a state of wretchedness which death alone can terminate, and wherein I must bury all my sorrows in silence, without even the melancholy relief of pouring them forth in the bosom of my friend, and seeking from her tender participation the only consolation I could receive. For after this dreaded union is completed, duty will forbid me to make my distress known, even to my Louisa, I must not then expose the faults of him whom slightest failings I ought to conceal. One only hope remains, that you, my first and dearest friend, will not abandon me, that whatever cloud of melancholy may hang over my mind, yet you will still bear with me, and remove your abode to a place where I may have the consolation of your company. 
if it be in my power to make my house a comfortable habitation to my Louisa, I cannot be entirely wretched. Miss Mansell gave her the tenderest assurances of fixing at least in her neighborhood, and since a second paradise could not recompense her for the loss of her society, and then on no terms could she prevail on herself to continue in a house where she must see that wretched Simon, who had been a vile instrument in reducing her friend to that distressful situation. This gleam of comfort was a very seasonable relief to Miss Melvin's dejected spirits, and gave some respite to her tears. As soon as she returned home, she acquainted Sir Charles and Lady Melvin with her resolution, who soon communicated it to Mr. Morgan, and nothing was now thought of but hastening the wedding as much as possible. "'I wonder,' interrupted Lamont, "'how Miss Melvin could bring herself to let her stepmother have such an opportunity of exulting in the process of her detestable arts.' "'That,' replied Mrs. Maynard, "'was a consideration which had no weight with her. "'Nor should it, indeed, be any mortification to our pride "'the deceit and cunning have triumphed over us. "'Wickedness serves itself by weapons which we would not use, "'and if we are wounded with them, "'we have no more reason to be mortified "'than a man would have to think his courage disgraced "'because when he lay sleeping in his bed "'he was taken prisoner by the body of armed men.' To be circumvented by cunning must ever be the fate, but never the disgrace of the artless. As Miss Melvin's compliance procured her a greater degree of favor at home than she had ever before enjoyed, Miss Mansell was suffered to come to the house, and met with an obliging reception from the whole family. Her continual presence there was a great support to her friend in her very disagreeable situation, and after indulging her sorrow in their private conversation, and mingling their sympathetic tears, she was the better able to endure the restraint which she was obliged to undergo when any other person was present. The dreaded day fixed on for this unhappy union soon came, and Miss Melvin received Mr. Morgan's hand and name with all the fortitude she could assume, but her distress was visible to all, even to Mr. Morgan, who was so little touched with it that it proved no abatement to his joy, a symptom of such indelicacy of mind as increased his bride's grief and apprehensions. The day after their marriage, Mrs. Morgan asked his permission to invite Miss Mansell to his house— which he answered, "'Madam, my wife must have no other companion or friend but her husband. I shall never be averse to your seeing company, but intimates I forbid. I shall not choose to have my faults discussed between you and your friend.' Miss Morgan was not much less stunned by this reply than if she had been struck with lightning. Practiced as she had long been in commanding her passions and inclinations, a torrent of tears forced their way. "'I did not want this proof,' resumed Mr. Morgan, "'that I have but a small share of your affections, "'and were I inclined to grant your request, "'you could not have found a better means of preventing it, "'for I will have no person in my house more beloved than myself. "'When you have no other friend,' added he with a malicious smile, "'I may hope for the honour of that title.' Mrs. Morgan was so well convinced before of the littleness of his mind that she was more afflicted than surprised at this instance of it, and wished he would not have rendered it more difficult to esteem him by so openly professing his ungenerous temper. However, she silently acquiesced, but that her friend might not feel the pain of believing herself neglected, she was obliged to tell her what had passed. The new married couple stayed but two days longer at Sir Charles's. Fortunately, Mr. Morgan spent the last day abroad in paying visits in the neighborhood, which gave the two unhappy friends leisure to lament their ill fortune in this cruel separation, without giving the cause of it any new offense. They took a melancholy leave that night, fearing that even a correspondence between them might be considerably restrained by this arbitrary husband who seemed to think his wife's affections were to be won by force, not by gentleness and generous confidence. 
this was the severest affliction they had ever yet experienced or indeed were capable of feeling united from their childhood the connection of soul and body did not seem any more indissoluble nor were ever divided with greater pain they foresaw no end to this cruel separation for they could not expect that a husband's complaisance to his wife should increase after he ceased to be a bridegroom louisa indeed who wished if possible to reconcile her friend to her fate pretended to hope that her good conduct might in time enlarge his mind and cure him of that mean suspicious temper which made him fear to have his faults exposed by a wife whose chief endeavour would be to conceal them but such distant views afforded no consolation to mrs morgan's affectionate heart the present pain engaged her thoughts too much to suffer her to look so far off for comfort she had flattered herself not only with the hopes of enjoying Miss Mansell's company, but of delivering her from all the difficulties of her situation, and offering her a protection from insult or poverty. To be disapproved of so delightful a prospect was her greatest affliction, and sat much heavier on her mind than the loss of her beloved society. The evening was far spent when Lady Melvin found them drowned in tears, anticipating the pangs of parting the employment of that whole day— and as her ladyship's hatred for her stepdaughter was much subsided, since she no longer feared the observation of her too virtuous eye, her natural disposition inclined her to prevent the wife's discovering her real sentiments to her husband. She therefore reminded them that Mr. Morgan must then be on his way home, and advised that by all means they should part before his return, lest he should be witness of a sorrow which he would take amiss. They were sensible that in this her ladyship judged well, and Louisa's fear of occasioning any additional uneasiness to her friend gave her resolution and strength to take a last farewell. Mrs. Morgan's maid attended her home, as she was too much affected to be able to perform that little walk without some support. Mrs. Morgan's condition was still more deplorable, more dead than alive. She followed Louisa's steps with eager eyes till a turning in the road robbed her of the sight of her friend and then, as if her eyes had no other employment worthy of them left, they were again overwhelmed in tears. Lady Melvin found her incapable of consolation, but more successfully endeavoured to make her suppress the indulgence of her grief by alarming her fears with the approach of Mr. Morgan. As soon as she was a little composed, she led her into the garden for air. The night was fine, and the moon showed very resplendent. The beauty of the scene and the freshness of the air a little revived her, and as Mr. Morgan stayed out later than they expected, she had time to acquire a sufficient command over herself to receive him with an air of tolerable cheerfulness. The new married pair set out early the next morning, and arrived at Mr. Morgan's seat the following day. The house was large and old, the furniture not much less ancient, the situation dreary, the roads everywhere bad, the soil a stiff clay, wet and dirty except in the midst of summer, the country round it disagreeable, and in short destitute of everything that could afford any satisfaction to Mrs. Morgan. Nature nowhere appears graced with fewer charms. Mrs. Morgan, however, had vexations so superior that she paid little regard to external circumstances, and was so fully determined to acquit herself properly in her new sphere that she appeared pleased with everything around her. Hypocrisy, as she observed, was now become a virtue, and the only one which she found it difficult to practice. They were received on their arrival by a maiden sister of Mr. Morgan's, who till then had kept his house, and he intended should still remain in it, for as though the partiality of an aunt who had bred her up she was possessed of a large fortune, her brother, in whom avarice was the ruling passion, was very desirous of keeping in her favour. Miss Susanna Morgan had lived immaculate to the age of fifty-five. The state of virginity could not be laid to her charge as an offence against society, 
for it had not been voluntary. In her youth she was rather distinguished for sensibility. Her aunt's known riches gave the niece the reputation of a great fortune, an attraction to which she was indebted for many lovers who constantly took their leave on finding the old lady would not advance any part of the money which she designed to bequeath to her niece. Miss Susanna, extremely susceptible by nature, was favorably disposed to all her admirers, and imagining herself successively in love with each, lived in a course of disappointments. In reality the impression was made only on her vanity, and her heart continued unengaged, but she felt such a train of mortifications very severely, and perhaps suffered more upon the whole than if she had been strongly impressed with one passion. In time the parsimony of her old aunt became generally known, and the young lady then was left free from the tender importunity of lovers, of which nothing else could probably have deprived her. For as she never had any natural attraction, she was not subject to a decay of charms. At near fifty-five her aunt departed this life, and left her in possession of twenty thousand pounds, a fortune which served to swell her pride without increasing her happiness." Nature had not originally bestowed upon her much sweetness of temper, and her frequent disappointments, each of which she termed being crossed in love, had completely soured it. Every pretty woman was the object of her envy, I might almost say every married woman. She despised all that were not as rich as herself, and hated every one who was superior or equal to her in fortune. Tormented inwardly with her own ill-nature, she was incapable of any satisfaction but what arose from teasing others. Nothing could dispel the frown on her brow except the satisfaction she felt when she had the good fortune to give pain to any of her dependents. A horrid grin then distorted her features, and her before lifeless eyes glistened with malice and rancorous joy. She had read just enough to make her pedantic, and too little to give her any improving knowledge. Her understanding was naturally small, and her self-conceit great. In her person she was tall and meagre, her hair black, and her complexion of the darkest brown, with an additional sallowness at her temples and round her eyes, which were dark, very large and prominent, and entirely without luster. They had but one look, which was that of gloomy, stupid ill-nature, except, as I have already said, when they were enlivened by the supreme satisfaction of having made somebody uneasy, then what before was but disagreeable became horrible." To complete the description of her face, she had a broad, flat nose, a wide mouth furnished with the worst set of teeth I ever saw, and her chin was long and pointed. She had heard primness so often mentioned as the characteristic of an old maid, that to avoid wearing that appearance she was slatternly and dirty to an excess. Besides, she had great addition of filthiness, from a load of Spanish snuff with which her whole dress was covered, as if, by her profusion in that particular, she thought to compensate for her general parsimony. This lady Mrs. Morgan found in possession of her house, and was received by her with that air of superiority to which Miss Susanna thought herself entitled by her age and fortune. Mrs. Morgan's charms, though drooping like a blighted flower, excited much envy in Susanna's breast, and she soon congratulated her on her extraordinary happiness in having captivated a gentleman of so large a fortune when her own was at present so very small. At first she commended her for not being elated with so great an acquisition, but in a little time taxed her with ungrateful insensibility to so prodigious a blessing. 
she continually criticized her economy accusing her of indolence representing how she used every morning to rouse the servants from their idleness by giving each such a scold as quickened their diligence for the whole day nor could a family be well managed by any one who omitted this necessary duty Mrs. Morgan's desire that her servants should enjoy the comforts of plenty, and when sick receive the indulgence which that condition requires, brought her continual admonitions against extravagance wherein Mr. Morgan readily joined, for his avarice was so great that he repined at the most necessary expenses. His temper was a mixture of passion and peevishness, two things that seldom go together, but he would fret himself into a passion, and then through weariness of spirits cool into fretfulness, till he was sufficiently recovered to rise again into rage. This was the common course of his temper, which afforded variety, but no relief. Sensible that his wife married him without affection, he seemed to think it impossible ever to gain her love, and therefore spared himself all fruitless endeavours. He was indeed fond of her purse, and he admired her beauty, but despised her understanding, which in truth was unavoidable, for his ideas and conversation were so low and sordid that he was not qualified to distinguish the charms of her elegant mind. Those who know Mrs. Morgan best are convinced that she suffered less uneasiness from his ill-humour, brutal as it was, than from his nauseous fondness. But the account I give of him, I have received from others. Mrs. Morgan never mentions his name if it can possibly be avoided, and when she does— it is always with respect. In this situation, a victim to the ill-humour both of her husband and his sister, we will leave Mrs. Morgan and return to that friend whose letters were her only consolation. Miss Mansell's person was so uncommonly fine that she could not be long settled in the country without attracting general notice. Though the lower rank of people may be less refined in their ideas, yet her beauty was so very striking that it did not escape their admiration, and the handsome lady, as they called her, became the general subject of discourse. As church was the only place where she exposed a public view, she had from the first endeavoured to elude observation by mingling in the crowd, and sitting in the most obscure seat, but when fame had awakened the curiosity of those of higher rank, she was easily distinguished, and in a short time many inhabitants of the neighbouring parishes came to that church to see her. She more than answered every expectation, for such perfection of beauty scarcely ever came out of the hands of nature. Many ladies in the neighbourhood introduced themselves to her, and found her behaviour as enchanting as her person. She could not be insensible of the approbation which every eye significantly expressed, but she was abashed and in some degree more mortified than delighted by it. She well remembered what Mr. Devorah said to her on that subject, and saw that in her situation beauty was a disadvantage. He often repeated the same thing to her in letters, for she and Miss Melvin, keeping up a constant correspondence with him, the latter had acquainted him with the general admiration paid to Louisa, and told her that he feared the plan they had formed for her future way of life was at a still greater distance than they had hoped, since her beauty was the greatest obstacle to its being put in execution. End of section 7